my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Please be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence and aid in helping us as we interact with this precious, true word of God. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From the outset, from the beginning, not just in the Great Commission that Rick read this morning in our New Testament text, but from the beginning, God's plan God's love was for all peoples. Um, We see when he promised the Messiah to Abraham, what did he say? Famous words, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It was interesting this week, and if it was a, a Sunday school class, we'd draw charts and see things on the board. But in this section, just to, to say, I found it, I found it fascinating as they analyze Second Kings as, as literature, there's a section of Samaria and God blessing individuals in these little vignettes that we've had. After this story, there'll be little vignettes of it. And then the text changes course, but right in the center of that is this man who was an enemy of God's people being brought in to be saved by God. And we need to always remember uh, God is the God for all people. I I, I wrote a verse down that we should be familiar with uh, by now. 
but Galatians 3.28, Paul is writing, and he's saying, in God's kingdom and among Christians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, God is not restricted by race or ethnicity. But there are people from all over, all peoples are Christians, have been saved by God. There's neither slave nor free. There's not uh, a certain economic status that you have to be to be a Christian. But God has saved people from all walks of life, the rich, the poor, the very rich, the very poor, the super rich, the destitute. And God has brought and saved people from slave and free. And there's no male or female, both genders. All are saved. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And we see this morning, and so free grace given to this king. So we're going to look for this, and we're going to have this in our background this morning. Uh, Four points today. One, God's sovereignty is total. That's verses one through four. Second point, God's servants can be pathetic, verses 5 through 8. God's ways are offensive, verses 9 through 14. And finally, God's work is unmistakable, and that's in verses 15 through 19. First of all, God's sovereignty is total. We saw those four verses. Naaman, he was a commander in the army of the king of Syria. They were at war with with Israel. They came and took a little girl captive. Uh, There we see uh, God's sovereignty there. What was interesting in that passage is this. Do you see in verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, and what's that next phrase there? By him, the Lord had given great victory to Syria. God is involved even in the realms beyond his people. We uh, are quick to to make sure we we see from the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament is his Israel, is his church today. But we don't think God is not involved outside of his church today and involved in the affairs. God's the one who sets up people who aren't Christians into their positions because God wants them there, because that's God's plan. Uh, God is not just... uh, our little mascot God for Christians, and other people have their gods. Uh, one of the verses we sang, it was a, a lift from Psalms, I think it was the first one we sang, above, from the gods with a little g, you are the God, and God was capitalized in that. And I thought, if I was writing it, I would capitalize the word the too, the God. Uh, but he's God, he's the only God. And he's not just God of his church and his Christians, but people who think, I don't want anything to do with God, uh, He has something to do with them or with you. I think think it was maybe R.C. Sproul who said, you may say you don't believe in God, but I got a bigger question for you. Does God believe in you? Uh, And God does believe in your existence, and God believes you're there, and God is involved in your affairs as surely as he's involved in, in the affairs of his Christians. By him, God had given victory to Syria. God's sovereignty is total in big international events, yes, but also in small individual events, also yes. 
He was a great man who won great battles and even carried off little girls to be slaves. And there's a little girl who was carried off. Don't even know her name. But she was a servant before her mistress. And there she was. And God was as involved in her being there serving Naaman's wife as he was involved in Naaman's great victories. It was a tragedy. Perhaps her parents were even killed in this war. Maybe they were dead. At the very least, they were dead to her. Uh, He wasn't demanding ransom. There was no uh, internet, no text messages, no way of finding. She was there. She was gone, carried off. Remember reading Solzhenitsyn saying, when you get sent to the death camps, uh, if you want to live, you just forget that you had a family back there. Right now, all it is is survival. You just survive. You've got to look at, at that. You're a new person. Everything has changed. It's survival. And here's this little girl. Uh, she had a birthday, but nobody's going to celebrate that where she's at. She's just serving there, carried off. Uh, and we see in a strange, weird way that's almost uncomfortable, God's plan in that. Do we see it? Well, it's there. It's, I got to see it. And I got to reconcile and deal with God's plan even in those circumstances. And there's that little girl there. Here's something I hadn't thought of until this week. When she said in verse 3 there, where it said, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So she is adjusted to her, her setting. But how many little girls in Samaria would have even known about the prophet or had faith in the prophet? Remember all those kids that said, go up, bald man, go up, and the way that it was so idolatrous. So not only was it just any old little girl from Samaria uh, that was taken and put in a situation to witness to God's power, it was this particular little girl who had been brought up and and somehow had faith and had a trust in, in Elisha to even to be able to say that. God's sovereignty extends even to that. Would every little girl from Samaria have even known Elisha and had a strong enough opinion to recommend him? Uh, Most of us in that situation would have said, good, I'm glad he's got leprosy. I hope he dies. Uh, Think of Jesus' uh, words in the New Testament to us and how we respond in situations. Uh, Luke 6, 27 through 31. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And we could add, and if you're a little girl taken as a slave by a foreign entity forced to work for the general's wife, and the general gets sick, and you know where he can find healing, tell him about that. That's godly, that's biblical, that's counterintuitive, that's against everything we know and do. And, and, and if God's in you, and as you're living for God, you might find yourself doing things like that more and more and more, because that's what it means uh, to live and walk as a Christian. It's one of the things it means to do that. 
Someone gave this principle about this, and I want us to think about this. Uh, a book I read this morning about, or this week about this incident, uh, the person stated, people are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. People are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. Naaman's coming into the kingdom of God at a cost, human cost, to this little girl, to her parents, to her family. Thought about what would it, what, what's it like up there in heaven with them now? And it, we don't even know in heaven, you know, the, the level of, of, of conversations and what we have. It's going to be great. But can you picture this little girl up there in heaven worshiping God alongside Naaman and Naaman's wife and her parents and Elisha? And you say, all this stuff here on earth uh, is playing towards something big and wonderful in heaven. And God brought them together and at great cost to this little girl. Naaman was brought in. Other instances, the Apostle Paul. What did he go through? You're hearing about it in Sunday school class, and you know it when you read the book of Acts. The things he suffered and struggled, and the ways the lengths he went to and what he was, what he was subject to. Great cost. He didn't save any one of those people. God saved him. But God, uh, sometimes in, in the way that people come to the Lord, there is a cost and a price to be paid. Other missionaries you may have heard about. Or I listed children whose parents work hard. Man, parents are working hard all day. And they deserve to come home and just sit back and, and, and then throw their briefcase or throw their whatever their work clothes are and just sit back and, and chill for a while. I, I've earned that. I've worked hard. No, there's a cost, kids, for your parents to teach you about the Lord, to still maintain on this great job that they have, even a more important job than their work job, to teach you about Jesus, uh, to pray for you. There's a cost. People are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. And at what great cost were you brought? Think of, of the cost that you were brought to Jesus at, the cost of the cross and the wrath of God poured out on Jesus as a propitiation for your sins. Uh, there is a cost. God's the one who saves, but uh, why does he talk about laborers in the harvest and workers for the field? Uh, there is something that, that God lets his people do to bring other people to him. Finally, in this section, just a reminder uh, that we've talked about and, and, and talked about and will talk about. In this, God is both strategy and operations. God has the plan that's beautiful and wonderful for his glory to save his people, and he has the means to work it out, and he does that. And so we see this little girl, and we see this general, and we see them coming together because God wanted them to. And all of a sudden, in verse 5, the king of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman's going to go. What does he have to lose? He's a leper. Something uh, that the Holy Spirit's doing and moving in him, something about the wor words of that little girl ringing true. He's talked it over with his wife. He's gone to the king. And the king says, you go to Israel then. If there's somebody in Israel that can save you, you're valuable to us. Go. And now we see Davis in his outline of this said, God's servants are pathetic. I said, ah, God's servants can be pathetic. 
But then I started thinking about it. We are pretty pathetic, and in our good moments, it's only because God's using us anyway. But God's servants could be pathetic. See what happens when you find the king of God's people uh, receiving Naaman. He went. He took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. He took a pretty big, hefty gift uh, to pay for him being saved. And he takes this big gift to pay for his salvation. And he comes to the king. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. It says, when this letter reaches you, Know that I've sent you to name in my servant that you may cure, sent you name in my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel said, What in the world? And tearing their clothes is a sign of distress. Sometimes you see sackcloth and ashes, you see the tearing of the clothes. And he says, What in the world? And uh, uh, the ten changes of clothes meant nothing. He's tearing his own kingly robes because he can't do anything, he is in distress. He said, am I God that I can kill people and I can make people alive? Who am I? I'm not God. I'm just the king of God's people. Who am I? He said, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He thought it was just a political thing. It's a scam. He's coming in and then when I can't save him, he's going to start a war with me. And all he's thinking about is himself, Uh, where he's at, what he can't do. Uh, Think about this. Not at all like this little girl. She was a great servant. And here's God's king who's supposed to serve God's people, who is flummoxed, who is stunned, who is paralyzed. He's the king, and he cowers. He is God's appointed person in God's church, so to speak, to lead God's people, and he has no idea what to do when a need comes to him. Contrast his faith with the faith of the little servant girl. The expectation and confidence that she had versus the fear and dread that he had. And think about Jesus saying to the Sadducees, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he didn't know where God's word was. And he should have known about God's power because he didn't interact with Elisha enough. He had no clue. Sometimes God's servants, the people that claim the name of God, can be pathetic. Practically, it's possible to be a member of a church, uh, even to be an officer or, or a leader appointed to something in God's church and have no clue about who God is practically. Here's Davis. Is the king not a warning to you? You may be numbered among God's outward people and yet live life without God. Your name may be on a church membership roll, and yet you do not seek him, long for him, or thirst for him. You do not cast your anxieties on him. You may be a long-standing Presbyterian or some other variety and have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at all. We may profess God, and yet live life without him. That's possible. On Judgment Day, would you rather have the title without the faith, or would you rather be like the little girl and have the faith without the title when you have your appointment with God? Uh, Think about it. I think most of us would say when we think about it rationally, we'd prefer to have the faith, 
even though we may be obscure like that little no-name captive servant girl. So we see God's sovereignty is total. We see that God's servants can sometimes be pathetic. And now look at how God's ways are offensive. God's ways humble our pride. To me, this is, a, this is funny. Uh, in verses 9 through 14, Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He's done with the palace, with the kingdom. He's driving to that little uh, region out there in Samaria, pulling up outside of where Elisha is living. Uh, those are some fancy cars out there. There's some, there's some fancy uh, security around this guy. What's going on? What's happening at the neighbor's house? Why are all those cars out there? No flashing lights, so it's not that, but something's going on over there at Elisha's house. Well, it was Naaman, the general, with all of his people, with his entourage, with his gifts, and he's pulled up and he says, all right, I'll go to Elisha, because Elisha had heard about the distress and called for him. Elisha sent a message to him. He's standing in the door of his house, and Elisha doesn't even answer the door. Elisha sent a message to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Man, I'm a dignitary. Well, Elisha himself didn't honor him as a dignitary. Elisha himself sent the best thing, God's word to him. And there is a humbling that must happen for us to be healed and cleansed. God's got to give us humility to accept his cross. Pride, no thanks. I'll do it myself. Uh, I'm not sure about forgiveness. Uh, I'm not sure about Jesus taking my place. I want to have some part in it, if I can, uh, to, to, to keep my face uh, cultured, my, my dignity, my pride. And he did not like not even being met, but just told to go dip in that Little River seven times. He was angry about it. And he said, this was so funny. He says, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. You know, just think of what he had in his mind, what, what salvation was. He's going to just go wave his hand around. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it would be something like that. Some mumbo-jumbo, some hocus-pocus, Something. And it was just a simple message. Get down to the river, dip seven times, specifically seven times, and you'll be clean. And I don't even need to see you. What anger he had. The dirty little Jordan River. He did like the rest of us have done or have been tempted to do or will be tempted to do. We want to pray to God for a solution to what we have, but then we want to tell God how he has to provide the solution. Don't we? God, save this person and use this person and use this person and use me and use... Well, God can do whatever he wants. Stop with just the humility and, and, and the proper respect toward God and say, God, you do it your way, please. And we humble ourselves before you. God does not have to jump when we say jump and he doesn't have to ask how high. This is God we're talking about and we are people humans we're talking about. God's ways trample our broad-mindedness. First point was God's ways humble our pride. 
Secondly, they trample our broad-mindedness. And I want us to think about this in the context of churches and the gospel as we present that. This was very dogmatic. It was a specific river. It was a specific amount of times to dip in the river. There was something specific. Our mindset is to want several options. And, and, and what I'm trying to tell us and remind us of is the Bible is dogmatic. The Bible does say specifically, you want salvation in hearing? Uh, what does it say? I, I wrote a couple verses down. I won't, I won't try and do them out of my head. He wrote uh, Acts 4, 11 through 12, the sermon that was preached there. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, You don't just get saved because you feel good about it. God is not the great pumpkin looking for the sincerest pumpkin patch and the most sincere people. Uh, Sincerity uh, is good, but just general sincerity and, and really believing it gets you nowhere with God. You can be sincerely wrong. We'll get to that, but the, the dogmaticness, the specificness of our mindset wants several options. Illustration. Your dog tears his ACL. That's happened to us a couple of times. <laughs> his back leg. Thank God there's only two. If he'd had five, the L5 would have torn all one right after another. But two of them tore. You go to the vet. It's a sudden development. You haven't taken the financial peace class, so it's going to cost a lot of money. You don't know where the money's going to come from all of a sudden. The doctor says, we can do it this way for X amount of dollars, or we can do it this way for a little more money, X amount. You can either put a screw in, you can put a rubber band in. One costs more, one costs less. You're at the mercy of that doctor. He sees you cringe. He goes, well, we've got financial payment plans. You can pay for all of it. You can pay half before, or we can, we can even no interest. We can make it month by month, and we can figure out, well, we'll figure out a way to do this. And all of a sudden, you kind of like that because... The doctor's the one who can heal, but you kind of want to choose the terms and choose the way and figure out the way. And all of a sudden, it's you and the doctor fixing your dog's ACL. Uh, We like that. We kind of want to do that with God. God, I kind of want the payment plan. God, what if you do the, the, the heaviest work, but I do a little bit of work with it, and maybe I pay on a month-to-month basis. Maybe I can just be good. Maybe I can, can when I get a little bit more, I can, can give to this or I can lead this at that time. But God, let's, let's work on my salvation together with me. You're the God who does the saving, but I've got I, I to gotta have my input in how you're going to save me. Um, he wanted that. Naaman said, Jordan, seven times? Rivers where I'm from are better. They're cleaner. What kind of a filthy little dirty river is that? What if he said, I'll do the Jordan, but I'll do six times? Or I'll do the Jordan, but I'm going to do 70 times? No, there's a dogmaticness to saying you're healing, and it's pointing to the dogmatic truth of the Bible. Not everybody who wants to be healed just gets healed if they say, I'm going to heal myself this way. Compare this with the ultimate spiritual healing, which I've tried to do. The message sometimes is too simple for people. Jesus does the saving. Now, I want to 
have a part in it myself. It's too specific and narrow. Repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus' actions on the cross. Uh, That's what it is. It's not a donation to the building fund or social justice work or anything like that to try and get God's attention to get his special saving. It is you humbling yourself, repenting of your sins, and saying, I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. That's it. The way, the truth, and the life. Someone said this, wrote this, Wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy? What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sin, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. Now that beats all. That's ridiculous. That's the foolishness of the gospel that, the, that is proclaimed. That's what we believe. There are people who can't overcome their disgust with the humiliation of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, and the narrowness of the gospel. Don't be one of those people. And finally, we see in verses 15 through 19 that God's work is unmistakable. Verses 15 through 19. And this is the part we didn't read in the opening, so so here it is. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged Elisha to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. So he's thinking ahead about what he's going to be like now that he's been changed and healed and he has belief in the one true God. He's thinking ahead. He's looking at obstacles because we know there are obstacles for us as Christians living in a fallen world. And he said, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, so when that king, when his master goes there, leaning on his arm, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. He said, there's some things, and I'm not sure yet, I haven't worked out what it means to be a Christian, but it feels like compromise. I'm not compromising in my heart. I've got to do this for my job. Help me. And what we are saying is looking at his reaction and his response that God's work is unmistakable. First of all, we see his attitude. Five times he called Elisha, he referred to Elisha as as his master. He said, I'm your servant. When your servant goes, when your servant goes. He wouldn't have done that prior. He wasn't even doing that back in verse 11. saying, who is this fool? Uh, Who is this guy? All of a sudden he's saying, I've been healed and changed. I'm your servant. He's not worshiping the man as much as he's worshiping the God that Elisha uh, spoke on behalf of. And he's saying, I am now submitting to the word. You see his confession in the last half of verse 15. He says, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. And all of a sudden he's gone from a multi, uh, multi, pantheistic type, whatever God works for you is God, whatever 
he, he's, he's gone the direction that the Bible tells us we must go. One God and one God alone. And he is now, um, he's now worshiping that true God. See his resolution in verse 17. He wanted two loads of earth from there. He was going to worship Yahweh exclusively. He is a new Christian. He hasn't figured it all out. But he says, I want something. This is more than just a souvenir, but I'm going to set up and I'm going I'm to offer sacrifice. I'm going to worship the one true God. And if this dirt, something happened here, this is what I want to take with me. Don't get hung up on the dirt. Uh, and all of that, but, but look at his heart and look at where he was going and what he wanted to do as a new believer in the one true God. And then finally you see his sensitivity. He had to accompany his master into worship this false god named Rimen. It was his job description. He accompanied that king in there. And when the king bowed, for the king to bow, if the king is leaning on his arm, this frail old king, He's going to have to bow too so the king can bow. That's his job. And he's saying, but please know, Elisha, I'm doing that for him, but my heart is not bowing. My heart is not bowing. And please don't hold this against me. Now, we don't know what happened later on, but he's got his conscience going on. And that's a mark of somebody who's a Christian. They want to live for Christ. They start to see little things that, that maybe they did before that they hadn't even thought twice about. And all of a sudden they're going, maybe this is against God. There's a Holy Spirit that helps us and, and helps us with our convictions. And different people have different sensitivities and different things. But he'd turned from his idols. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, we don't know what he did. And I thought, what did he do when he returned? Right now, he's just thinking of it. Maybe he found a way for someone else to accompany the king in. Maybe that was possible in that culture. Maybe he thought about that on the way back. Um, He prayed about it. He found some alternative, perhaps. How did Daniel do it? Think of Daniel in the Bible working uh, basically two administrations, two two worldly situations. And Daniel was there as a valued advisor in those pagan governments. Now, when push came to shove and the the law came down, don't pray to God, Daniel said, I'm going to violate it. I'll take my stand and I'll, I'll go to death for that if I have to. But he found a way to work. I got it, I've got it made in my uh, profession that God's called me to do. I get to be the pastor. You guys are out there. And you've, I started thinking about different individuals of you uh, and, and what you must go through, how you don't compromise your faith, how you stand for God, and yet how you be salt and light. And it's a hard Wrote a hoe sometimes to thread the needle. Maybe I'll be a better prayer for you. You'd be a better prayer for me. That, that would help. But, but you guys, in your jobs, to not sin, and yet to be in the world, but not of it. But you see that even the struggle 
even the working through it, even that is a positive thing because that means you have been healed. It does mean you trust in God. So it's a good thing, even though it's hard. There'll be a day when it's less hard. That's coming. What did John the Baptist tell the Roman soldiers? They were coming, and they, they, he, was, he was out there uh, baptizing and getting people. People were saying, we're sinners, we're sinners, and everybody was coming. And even Roman soldiers came out to him, and, and, and they said, how should we live now? We've repented. We see our sin. We're seeing a God. They hadn't seen Jesus yet, but that was Jesus was coming. Uh, maybe he came even later on that day. But he said, they said, what do we do? How do we live now? He says, well, don't. He, he didn't say, well, get out of that stinking Roman army. Those guys are bad. He just said, you be good soldiers. Work it out. We're in the world, not of it. We're called to live quietly with our own hands. We're, we're called to be here in this culture. Uh, when it comes down to obeying God or obeying man, that's, that's a no-brainer. God help you. God will help you. The Spirit walks with you. When you log in, that Holy Spirit that indwells you is logging in there with you. That job you're going to, that way that you're at, as you, as you pray for your unsaved co-workers, as you live for God, and, and who knows, you, you think through it, and you, you, do what you, you do what you're best, and, and you, you live your conscience, and if you have things to talk about, find some mature Christian to talk about it that's been there. But uh, the point here is God had really saved him because he really knew there's a dilemma now as a person who's a God-believer, over what it was before. I just wrote, continue to make yourself valuable to your employer and your fellow employees. Worship God and keep defining the boundaries between what's important and for what reasons. And then, with you at work, with me at work, with all of us, I, I sometimes go back to, to just the Keith Green philosophy of life, which is the very best. Keith Green was an old hippie beach singer, uh, contemporary Christian singer back in the, uh, in, the, in the Jesus movement and the people. He had one song that really just could, can be your philosophy of life and you're doing good. He said, keep doing your best, pray that it's blessed, and he'll take care of the rest. And in some ways, Simplify it. You do your best. You pray, you, you live, you walk, you pray, and God takes care of it. And God, we don't know how it happened with Naaman, but we know that issue worked itself out. Naaman's in heaven now worshiping God. Um, we're going to go to Gehazi and the greed and things next time. Uh, but for now, just as we close, trying to think of a way to wrap this all up, I wanted to remind you of something I said at the beginning of the sermon. People are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. Thank God for saving you through Jesus. Second, thank God for the cost that people paid to see you brought into the kingdom. Your parents, maybe. Your Sunday school teachers. That fellow student or co-worker or fellow soldier who took the ridicule and the loneliness of living for Christ and sharing Christ with you. That cost that they paid to bring you in every little church you ever went to, every person who God used, their time, their money they gave to keep Bibles distributed and church doors open, the way they led your parents to Christ. Think about what God did and, and, and be thankful for the cost that, that people paid to get the gospel to you. 
And finally, be aware that God has lovingly chosen for you to be involved, planting and watering while he gives the increase in his gospel harvest. Take a look at yourself and be as expectant and confident as that little girl, that little servant girl was. Confident that God's the saver. If you're a member here, then we get to do it together. The same as we get to sing praise to God together, confess our sin to God together, give our tithes and offerings together, and partake at the Lord's table together. Be glad that you get to serve God in a company of people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for uh, just the reminder that you are the saving God, the biggest picture that you are a God who can change the heart of an enemy to a worshiper. And thank you for all the little details around it that can be encouraging to us, how you use circumstances, how you use courage, how you even use hard, bad times, uh, like you did in, in this little servant girl to see your great will accomplished. We thank you that uh, this earth is just a breath. We thank you that it's just a vain show. We thank you that there is something eternal and beautiful and wonderful where we're headed. We thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. In his name we pray, amen.